0: Good morning. Hey, right, we're going to be in Acts today. So, Acts 10, uh, we're going to do from halfway through verse 23, or 23b, if you like that kind of thing, to uh, verse 48. Um, The words may or may not come up on the screen behind me, so uh, feel free to use your devices or your Bible or just to listen carefully. That'll be fine. Right. Oh, I heard the words were gonna swap, which I think means (laughs) Okay, there we go. Okay, from 23b. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of, the some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify <coughs> me—and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, "Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have." So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. When I was when I was growing up, every summer I used to go to a, a youth camp. It wasn't New Day, and uh, it was much smaller, and. We all stayed in these, these canvas tents. They, they looked a bit like old army ones. In fact, I'm pretty sure there were like patches where, or we used to imagine there were patches where the bullets had gone through. And, uh, and, and what we'd do throughout this week is there would be loads of activities during the day. And then in the evenings, there would be worship time and, and a talk. Now, this camp was set up and run by members of the Brethren Church. And uh, if you don't know much about the Brethren Church, they, they don't really believe in, uh, in the gifts of the Spirit being present today. And that, that was just their view and that was their belief. And so one year at this particular camp, the, the title, the, the big theme for the week was God Does Unexpected Things. That, that was the title. And so we'd had several talks throughout the week about how God does things that are unexpected and then one night during the worship time this young girl started speaking in tongues in the middle of this this worship meeting uh and you should have seen the looks on the leadership uh they they quickly flocked around her they were like you cannot do this that is not for now if you're going to keep doing that please leave the meeting so she left the meeting so she went out to her tent. The meeting continued. Um, after the meeting, her tent mates went back to the tent and she was still speaking in tongues. And her tent leader, who was in the tent with her, was like, stop You're speaking in tongues. This isn't of God. Stop it. You cannot do this. Um, she didn't stop. Now, this girl's tent leader was the daughter of the big boss of the camp. He was the man in charge. He, he knew that this was wrong and not good. So at the call of his daughter, who was saying, this girl will not stop speaking out in tongues, the big boss came. And another guy who was leading it came as well, and they went to shut this down. So they went into this tent, and they were about to say to this girl, Really, you need to stop it. You're disturbing people. It's not good. As soon as they entered that tent, she started prophesying over them. She unveiled what was in their hearts. She brought grown men who were convinced that the Holy Spirit doesn't work today to their knees because she showed them that God was living, active, and willing to intervene in lives today. In fact, the guy, the brethren leader who... Who led that camp, uh, ended up coming to, to our church, at a charismatic reformed church, because he was so convinced and so changed by what God had done and revealed to him. God did something unexpected through his spirit that week. And that is actually what we're going to see in this passage today. God does something unexpected by his spirit, which changed lives and hearts. And we're going to look at... Uh, we're going to look at the kind of unexpected unity that comes in this passage. We're going to look at a unity of location. We're going to look at a unity of belief. And we're going to look at a unity of spirit. So last week, we, we heard that, that Peter had this vision. He had the vision where this sheet came down. And uh, basically, God said, you know, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. I don't think God revealed exactly to Peter what was going to happen. I think God told Peter what Peter needed to hear in order for Peter to take these steps. And so, I think this was unexpected for Peter too. And it's about unity of the church. What we'll be looking at, ultimately, is the work of Jesus in the church. So, first point then, unity of location. We'll look at verse 28. Peter says, he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, this is a big step for Peter, a Jew. He's basically stepped into a Gentile's house. He's broken the law and he has therefore associated with a Gentile believer that he really probably shouldn't have. And this was a big deal. So for first century Jewish believers, separation and segregation was a huge part of their belief. And in fact, you see it running kind of throughout the whole Old Testament. We start with with Adam and Eve who start in perfect unity and perfect relationship with God. And then sin comes in. And what do we get? We get get the story of kind of the whole of humanity where suddenly it is... Separation from God. Suddenly a gap has occurred. We see with Abraham that actually God calls Abraham out of a pagan city, Ur of the Chaldeans. God calls Abraham to to live in a land where he is separate from the rest of the settlers. Abraham lives in a nomad, that's in a nomadic existence. He doesn't own any of the land there. He is called to be separate. From the people. Moses, with the Exodus, the the Hebrews have been living in Egypt for 400 years, and yet they've still remained a distinct people. Over 400 years, they've not assimilated into the Egyptian culture or the Egyptian people. And God calls them out, brings them up to a promised land. He calls them out, he separates them from Egypt, and he calls them to a promised land where they are to live. Differently and separately from the nations around them, the big the big call in them it, for them is not to live like those. Don't end up believing in the other gods around you. Live differently, and that's why God kind of gives the law to them. They are to be holy as God is holy. And now holiness. Is being set apart, it is different. God is holy because He is set apart, He is different, He is above us. And the nation of Israel were called to be separate, they were called to be different. Now, ultimately, in the Old Testament, that is because they were to be a light to the world. There's actually quite a lot in the law where it talks about foreigners who believe in God being welcomed in. Um, the kind of Forget that bit, but in terms of the first century. Um, and then what we see actually in the rest of the Old Testament, from that point on, is this descent of Israel, where they utterly fail to keep the law and to live separately. <laughs> they adopt the gods of the nations around them. They do not live in a, in a holy way. And what we see actually is then the people of Israel are separated from the promised land. They're pulled away. The way the, the way the Assyrians and the Babylonians worked is when they when they took over a nation, they stopped revolt by just taking all the upper classes away. You, you take them away, the people who are willing and probably able to fund a revolt. You get rid of them, move them to Babylon or Assyria, and you separate them from the land. You separate them from the people. And then we actually see after a certain time, a certain amount of time, being in exile, the Jewish people still retain their identity. They still retain their identity as the people of God. They've lived separately in another land. Certainly, actually, the the southern kingdom of Judah in Babylon, they've lived separately. And so it gets to a point where uh, Cyrus the Persian takes over Babylon and he sends people back to go and build the temple. They're coming back to the promised land. They have lived distinctly as the people of God. And then, sorry, this is a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. uh, And then there's like a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And in that time, I would say division and segregation, separation in that society increases. And one of the best ways to see that is actually in the building of the temple. Herod builds a temple... Uh, about 30, 20 30 years before Jesus is born. And in that temple, we see a kind of rings of courts from the inner bit of the temple working out that actually emphasizes that segregation. So right in the center of the temple, we have the Holy of Holies. That is what you call the priestly court. That is where the priests, people who are allowed to, they could, you know, they had the right clothes. They were clean. They were allowed to be in there. They could enter that place. Then outside of that, you had the man's court. That is where men could go. Men who were ceremonially clean, who were Jewish. Well, they could go in that area. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but they could go in this courtyard. So they were they were a bit closer to God. They weren't right there, but they were a bit closer. Then, sorry, screen. Uh, A step away from that outside of the man's court was the women's court that was where a woman who's ceremonially clean that that's as far as they could go towards the presence of God and then outside of that there's another court and that is the Gentiles court that is where Gentiles could go if you were not Jewish you could not go beyond this court that was as close as you could get to God no further And so this segregation had been so built into the Jewish culture at that time that extra rules had been added, like Jews not being to associate with Gentiles. There was a distinct segregation there. And I think the vision that God gave Peter, (laughs) the vision that God gave Peter allowed him to take that step. God broke down that wall It wasn't just a physical wall. it, it, was, it was probably a spiritual or mental wall. It allowed Peter to take that first step into coming into Cornelius' house. But it wasn't just as simple as like any old Gentile. It wasn't just, you know that bloke down the street who moved over here. It was a little bit different because Cornelius was, was a Roman. And actually, Cornelius was probably Italian. So not just, not just any Roman, but, but like the Roman of Romans. And not just was he an Italian Roman. He was a military man. And so the Romans are the, the oppressors of Israel. They've taken it over. The nation of Israel has to pay tax to Caesar They are not to rebel against Caesar, who is their ruler. Yes, they still identify as a separate nation, but they're they're a Roman province. Their king is really, he's a puppet to Caesar. And so for the Jews, this is a terrible, awful thing that they are oppressed. And Peter is taking the step to go and see a military Italian Roman. This is huge. This is a massive thing. But because God has spoken to him, Peter takes that step. It is the first step in unity, and that is the unity of location. They have to be next to each other. They have to be in the same place. Okay, next, point two, unity of belief. So we're going to read from verse 34 to 43. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know What has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter rocks up at Cornelius' house. He takes that brave step of going through the door. And Cornelius says, tell us, tell us what you want us to hear, what you've been commanded to hear. And so Peter preaches. But one of the things he highlights straight away is he highlights the commonality of what they believe. You know the message God sent. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. He then goes on, Peter then goes, to, goes on to kind of explain and, and testify about what Jesus has commanded him to say and told him to say that he goes on to be a witness of who Jesus was and the work of Christ. God does not show favoritism to people from any one nation. This is what is being revealed to Peter. And so Peter actually makes some statements about What they believe, what Peter and those with him believe as Christians. They believe that Jesus brought the good news to Israel. That Jesus is Lord of all. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus went around doing good and healing. Jesus died on a cross. Run out of fingers. Uh, God raised him from the dead. That people saw him and witnessed him. Jesus has been appointed to judge the living and the dead and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this, I'd say, is almost an early creed. Now, a creed is kind of a summary of Christian belief. And this has been necessary, actually, quite a few times throughout the history of the church. We've got 2,000 years of church history where creeds have come up because often we as Christians need to define what it is to be a Christian, what it is to believe. I remember, I remember once talking about Christianity with some colleagues at work, and we were talking about religion, and, and there was a few of us there who said, oh, we are Christians. Um, and then some of the other guys who, who weren't were saying, okay, well, what, what is it to be a Christian? What does it mean to believe? And so I was explaining about how Jesus is God, when the other guys who said they were Christians, were like, oh, no, we don't, we don't believe that. Oh, I, uh, <coughs> what? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. What? What? What do you believe? Um, and they were like, well, we kind of, kind of, not that Jesus is God, but a bit like a, a superpowered human. Uh, I don't, uh, like, like Superman. Well, a little bit. Um, like, like Hercules. I think. I think you've got Christianity and Greek mythology mixed up. You, you, know, you, you haven't understood it. And they're like, well, yeah, a bit like Jesus was a demigod. And I was like, well, you've not got this. You know, you, you, this is not Christianity. And that is why Peter's actually highlighting what it is to believe. Peter's highlighting what it is to, to know about Jesus. And so in this... We as Christians in in the last 2,000 years have have come up with summaries of faith, often in the face of varying beliefs. Modern day historians would say that actually when Christianity first started, there was this huge spread of belief. People believed all sorts of different things about Jesus. And then what happened is the, the nasty Romans came along. They, uh, they took Christianity as their state religion. And what they did is they oppressed all these other various beliefs and started one that they could control. Uh, and I would say that is hugely untrue and absolutely a product of our time because In our belief, in our society, having oppressed peoples, squashed down, well, that just reflects what we as a society are like. That is not how early Christianity was. We we see, actually, that there's a big push by Paul. He, He says to Timothy, you know, stop people in Ephesus from teaching false doctrines. There is such a thing as orthodoxy in early Christian belief and I know if, when I mention the word orthodoxy, there's probably three responses. One of them is what? Uh, the, the second one is no, it sounds dull. And, and the third one is yes, there are some people here, Richard Barker, who love a bit of orthodoxy. And amen. Uh, because it is so key that we are unified in belief. It is so key that we are unified about who Jesus is, about who God is. I am... Um, I'm just going to read, actually, the Apostles' Creed, a fairly early statement of faith in the early church. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. That is a summary of what it is to have Christian faith. And we we have to believe in the authority of this. Because as Christians, if we start straying from this, if we start going, well, that's a bit uncomfortable, I don't really want to believe that, then we end up in danger. Because very quickly, we can stray from the key orthodoxy that makes what it is to be Christian, Christian. We stray from what God has spoken to us and and revealed to us. and, And our response... What is our response when the Bible says something that makes us squirm? What happens when the Bible talks about sexuality? Or the Bible talks about authority? Or the Bible talks about the difference between men and women? What is our response? It's not what I want to hear. It's not what the culture wants to hear. What do we do? Do we, do we humble ourselves? Do we, do we look into it? Or do we just say, it's culture? Back then, let's just sweep that aside. I'd say be, be careful of using the culture argument if you've not looked into it. Um. Let's humbly submit ourselves to, to loving the word, to seeking God through it, to being a unified people believing what God tells us. Thirdly, uh, unity of the spirit. This is the the final step of unity in this passage. In verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now a um, slightly cheeky tangent Uh, for those of you here who, who believe the Holy Spirit only comes when we have three songs, one after the other, and the... <laughs> when, when we just keep worshiping, actually, I want to I want to I want to lift your faith for God pouring out His Spirit during the sermon. That's what He does here. <laughs> it's not just about music or the right atmosphere. It's about God moving amongst us. Tangent aside, not the actual point I'm going for. Um, what we see. In this particular passage, I think, is that language means a lot when it comes to unity. So I, I absolutely love this time of year. I love February. It's not because everything's damp and grey. Uh, it's not because everything's cold. It's because the Six Nations has started. That's right, the rugby's back on. And um, i I enjoy generally watching rugby with uh, people from opposing teams It, ma- it makes it amusing, uh, certainly you know before the last few years as an England fan, it made it amusing not not so much recently um, but a few years ago, I invited Steve Thomas and his boys over to come and watch England against Wales and if you 've got guessed by the surname Thomas, Steve is a Wales fan, and uh, we lived. In a, in a terrace house where the walls were paper thin. And it got to the national anthems and the English national anthem, and he's like, <laughs> and he was, oh, no one is passionate really about the English national anthem. I'm sorry if you are, I'm not, it's dull. Um, and then, then the, the complete opposite of the English national anthem is Steve Thomas springs to his feet, hand on his heart, and belts out the Welsh... National Anthem. And if you've never heard it, Steve, would you like... No. Uh, (laughs) I'm not gonna be that cruel, but um, to us. Uh, Steve, uh, in that moment, I have never felt less Welsh. Now, I don't often rate myself on a a scale of feeling Welsh um, because I'm not, Uh, but You feel in that moment where somebody is singing in another language when Steve was belting out with all that passion, I'm not Welsh. I am separate from the Welsh nation. I'm not, you know, it's just, it excludes you. That's what it does, that's part of what it is. When you are Welsh and you can sing that and you are passionate, you feel together. When you are not Welsh, you are very obviously on the outside. Language means a lot to unity. And we see it in the Bible too. We see it in the Tower of Babel, where arrogantly a nation was building a tower to reach God. And in order to thwart them, God spreads different languages among them. It means when they wake up one day, they cannot speak to one another. They've gone from being a unified people on a project together to being divided. And language divides them. But what we see in this passage is we see people from a different nation speaking in God-given tongues. And we see how it unites, because even the the circumcised believers go, hold on, they're speaking the language that God gave us. Because it starts off with Pentecost. We see the Spirit poured out, we see God-given tongues, and all of a sudden it's like, well, they're singing this, this anthem not only are they now part of the jewish people but they're part of this heavenly kingdom and then we see as the spirit spreads to samaria we see tongues poured out on them and all of a sudden they go from a a separate nation to the jews they go they're singing that heavenly anthem too they're part of the same nation and the same people and the jews could kind of go well we're kind of related to the Samaritans. I kind of understand that a bit. But then we get Cornelius and Cornelius' household, Italian, Roman military people. And you know what? God pours out his spirit and they are singing the same anthem, the same heavenly anthem. And so you go from separate nations and separate people to all singing the same song, all singing the same language, and what you see is the beautiful unity that Jesus brings about in the church. We see how every nation is brought under him, and that's when Peter and the believers get it. I think that's when it sinks in, when, this, when the gift of tongues is poured out, and they go, we're singing the same song. We're part of the same people. And for us, uh, to be fair, unless you're a Jewish believer in here, for the rest of us here, this is the moment we have to thank God for. This is the moment where actually we come into the kingdom. The unity of Christ is absolute. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 18, it says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Our standing before God is not affected by our race, it is not affected by our caste, it is not affected by where we were born, what accent we have, it is affected only by the work of Jesus Christ. And what we see in Paul telling us, he talks about the walls of hostility being broken down. Well, picture that temple again. Picture the courts, all these barriers stopping us, stopping people getting to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God. Well, what we have in Jesus is actually these temple walls come crashing down. The Gentiles, well, they take a step further in. In fact, they take a huge stride further in. They get access to the Father through Jesus. The women, access to the Father through Jesus. The men who weren't priests, access to the Father through Jesus. These walls, these barriers are broken down. And so we are a united people. We are, doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter who you are, we are a, a people, a nation united before God because we are singing the same anthem. That's who we are. And so today, I I think we still need these three elements of unity. We still need to be in the same place. We still need to meet together. The Bible tells us to love one another, and by that we'll be known as disciples, as followers. Well, it's hard to do that when you're not together. We still need to, to meet. It's... Hard to be a Christian if you're just listening to online talks and you aren't being discipled, you aren't being challenged by others. We still need unity of belief. We still need his word unifying us, joining us together, challenging us, shaping us. And we still need unity of the spirit. I, I, um, I really enjoyed Ian's challenge To us this morning, because I've written that exact same challenge in my notes for for us. I want to encourage us that actually the the Spirit is for all of us. God gives us all gifts, and actually, it can be easy to kind of be like, right, I'm in the right place, and yeah, I like the Bible, that's good, and sometimes it's a little bit awkward gift of the Spirit. It's less controlled, it feels. It feels a little bit more, what do I do? But I want to I encourage you, actually, if you are believing this word, then God tells us to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. I believe God can actually speak to all of us. I, I just want to encourage you that God speaking to you doesn't necessarily have to be writing in the sky or loud voices. God can do something in the week that triggers just a bit of a, a thought. God can give you a picture but maybe a bit of a picture, something to build upon and work upon when you're praying. Sometimes, for me, I get a gut feel. I think God's speaking about this, so I pray about it. God develops. If I want to encourage you, give the host something to do. Challenge, you know, don't just give the right amount of stuff so that they can just feed one after. May there be bunches of us wanting just to share. Challenge, Chris and, and Ginny, maybe, maybe in another week. Uh, but, uh, you know, the reason we have hosts here is so that if you feel a bit like, mm, I'm not sure, you know, humbly submit it to them. They can discern what God is doing. And if something isn't shared, it's not because you've failed. It's probably because you and 20 other people have heard what God is saying today. And that's good. We want to do it for the building up of the body. That is our motivation. It's scary being up here. Um, I was probably tell me about sweat on this microphone it is not it's not easy but actually we're doing it because we want to encourage each other we want to build up the church i just i want to encourage us as well the world still needs to know about forgiveness peter talks about forgiveness being through the name of jesus i think our world knows quite a lot about sin It might not call it that, but I think we see it every time uh, a politician's tweet is unearthed for 20 years ago and they're fired. We know what it is to judge as a people. We know what it is to hold people to, to standards we don't keep ourselves. But what we don't know about as a nation is forgiveness. How many times do people go, you know, yeah, that tweet was out of order. That's 20 years ago. They may have learned. Let's forgive and see if they move on. That's not something the world preaches, but it's something Jesus does. Whereas somebody within a tweet can offend a society who unforgivingly cast them aside. We have a holy God who's been offended by what we do. We deserve to be cast aside. But what he has done is he has saved us. He has forgiven us. I think the world needs to see that difference. And it needs to see that in a church that is united. I I will stop, I'm sorry. But I recently heard a story. I know somebody went to preach. uh, And they went to preach in Spain at an expat church. And in that church, there were Ukrainian refugees, a bunch of Ukrainian women. And they didn't understand English. They didn't understand the speech. But in that church, someone was translating for them, and that was a Russian man. This is the church united, where the world has divided. The church brings all together under Christ, and it makes a statement. It makes a difference.